The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. I want to say up front that I will be discussing sex, sex education, consent, and different sexual acts on today's podcast. If that's triggering for you, please take care of yourself and skip this episode. Also, if you ever listen while children are present, maybe listen to this one first by yourself and think about if it's appropriate for your children. Hey everyone, welcome back to the What Would It Take podcast. Let's talk about sex today. Now look, hey, I know, I get it. You probably weren't expecting to hear that. Or maybe you were, maybe you looked at the title of this episode and you knew what you were getting yourself into. Or maybe you're squirming, you're getting a little bit uncomfortable, kind of fidgety, and you're ready to switch to a different podcast. And hey, that's totally understandable. I feel you. Or maybe you really do want to talk about sex. Maybe you want to hear someone else talk about it, but you're afraid. You don't know how to bring it up. You don't know where to go. And so you've tentatively pressed play, hoping maybe something in this episode will scratch that itch. Regardless, wherever you're at, here we are. You've already hit play. So while we're here, let's just talk about it. Now, I got to be honest. I have received a lot of different messaging around sex throughout the course of my life. Some of it has been direct and verbal, and other messages have come through more indirect means, more observations. But a lack of boundaries in my family of origin meant that I was exposed to sex long before I knew how to read. And this early exposure caused me to fear sex and view it as something bad or dangerous. Now later on, after I was adopted, my family and church community taught me that sex could actually be something good as long as you are married, and more specifically, as long as you are in a heterosexual marriage. They told me that any sex outside of that marriage was unholy, impure, or even shameful. And most of the messages that I received either through my family of origin or my adoptive family and church community left me afraid of sex, if I'm being honest. Like, I viewed it as something so inappropriate, something that would just cause me to sin or cause me to fall out of favor with God. And so I feared it. It seemed like the urges that I had within me were perverse. I didn't know why they were even there if they were just meant to trip me up. But the honest truth is that most of us possess some sort of desire for sex or at least sensuality or eroticism. And if you grew up in certain segments of the Christian tradition, you were probably taught that you had to fight those urges, fight those desires, fight the parts of you that were luring you into sin. Unfortunately, for, for many of us, the theology that we were given as children and even as adults taught us that sexuality and eroticism went hand in hand with sin. Do you all know what a tragedy that is? We have taken something as naturally wonderful as eroticism, sensuality, and sexuality and twisted them. We have lost the joy and pleasure of sex, and in doing so, I think we've lost parts of ourselves and maybe even parts of God. See, messages about abstinence are a prime example of what we've lost. Now, don't get me wrong here. Can abstinence be a healthy and effective way to honor your sexuality? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
The trouble comes when it's presented as the best way for everyone. In many church settings and educational settings, the messaging you receive about sex is that you must be abstinent until marriage. Sometimes a ban on masturbation or any lustful thoughts at all is included in this understanding of abstinence. Teens and adults alike have gotten this message over and over and over. It's been pitched as a way to protect them from STDs or STIs, from unwanted pregnancies, from heartbreak, and even hell itself. And it's a message loaded and steeped in fear. It does little to foster understanding, curiosity, consent, or pleasure. And that's tragic because if we believe our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, perhaps we should explore them more and indulge in wonder more often. Instead, we've emphasized fear and that has disconnected us from ourselves. I'm going to dive into the attitudes we carry about sex in our bodies in the next episode, but today I want to drill down on the idea of abstinence itself, specifically as it's taught in schools across the country as abstinence-only education. This is the belief that the best form of safe sex is no sex at all. First of all, we have a definitional error. That's like saying the only safe way to drive a car is to not drive at all. I mean, technically, I guess it's true, but if you're not driving, you're definitionally not driving. It, it doesn't even make sense. But definitions aside, there are other problems with this pervasive ideology, and we're going to explore those in the rest of this episode. You're listening to season two of the What Would It Take podcast. Today, we're asking, what would it take to talk about sex? Listen in. Okay, so abstinence-only education. What exactly is it? What does that even mean? I'm going to quote directly from a 2018 Women's Health Policy Report by the Kaiser Family Foundation. It states, quote, In general, abstinence-only programs, also known as sexual risk avoidance programs, teach that abstinence from sex is the only morally acceptable option for youth and the only safe and effective way to prevent unintended pregnancy and STIs. They generally do not discuss contraceptive methods or condoms unless to emphasize their failure rates, end quote. Now compare this to comprehensive sexual education, which covers abstinence as an option, but also provides information on safe sex practices. So those are kind of the two things that we're juxtaposing here. We've got abstinence-only programs, which are often abstinence-until-marriage programs, versus comprehensive sexual education programs. Where is sex ed even taught? That answer varies state to state and even district to district, but we do have a wide range of policies and requirements across the country. As of October 1st, 2020, 30 states and the District of Columbia mandate sex education for youth. At least 37 states require that when taught, sex education must include abstinence, and 26 of them require that abstinence be stressed. 22 states require that the information taught in sex education be medically accurate, and at least 18 states and the District of Columbia require that when sex education is taught, information on contraception must be provided. So there are 50 states, famously, right? But only 30 of the 50 require sex education for youth. And the majority of states that require it also mandate that abstinence is taught, if not stressed. And only 18 states and Washington, D.C. require that sex education include information on contraception. So the picture that paints is that across the majority of the country, 
The standards are wildly uneven, but most states are requiring sex education be taught and abstinence be included, if not stressed. Now, again, abstinence itself is not necessarily problematic. However, it's when abstinence is taught and other forms of safe sex aren't included in that teaching, that is where we get into the problems. And what this picture tells us is that sex education varies widely across the country. And if it is taught at all, abstinence is at least mentioned and likely stressed. And when it is stressed, like in abstinence-only education programs, quite frankly, the messaging fails our children. Since the mid-1900s, the federal government has provided states with over $2 billion in funding for abstinence-only sexual education programs. That's a considerable sum of money. And some of these grant funds even came in the form of block grants, which didn't need approval from state legislatures. That meant that the schools could implement them at their own convenience. And while national adolescent pregnancy rates have decreased, it isn't because of abstinence-only education. Actually, one comprehensive study found that in conservative states, abstinence-only education actually led to an increase in adolescent pregnancies. Another study done by the University of New Hampshire found that abstinence-only education had neither a positive nor a negative effect on teen pregnancy rates, condom use, or STD rates. Put plainly, most of the scientific literature to date suggests that at best, abstinence-only education has either a very minor effect or no effect at all on teen pregnancy rates, condom use, or STD rates. And at worst, well, let's unpack that. First, there's the argument that youth aren't being given complete information about safer sexual practices. If they want to make truly informed decisions, they have to supplement the information they're receiving from school. And if they don't have sufficient information, they aren't going to be prepared for their inevitable sexual encounters. Now, I say inevitable because people have sex. This isn't a secret. The drive for sex is quite literally biologically wired into most of us. Not all of us, but most of us. Couple that with underdeveloped impulse control and a lack of life experience, and you find that sexual contact is all but inevitable for most of our youth. Now, let me pause here and note that we haven't even agreed on what we're talking about when we talk about sex. Again, we're not here to unpack every possible definition you could have for sex, but I just want you to take note of what you've been imagining as we've been talking about sex so far. Okay, that was a bit of a tangent, but where were we? Right. Abstinence-only education doesn't prepare adolescents, teens, or young adults for the sexual encounters they will likely have. When they do end up in a position to have sex, they might not understand the options they have for consent or refusal, safer sex practices, or even the emotional and social ramifications of their actions. I mean, just think about it for a second. I'm sure you can imagine a 16 or 17 year old who's at a party with their friends when suddenly they find themselves alone in a car with their crush. No one has talked to them about how to establish consent. No one has helped them explore their own feelings about sex or walked them through communicating those feelings with their partner. And on top of that, they weren't planning on having sex, so they don't have any protection with them. I mean, that seems like a pretty plausible scenario to me, but maybe you're thinking, nah, my kid would never be in that situation. All right, fine, I'll do you one better. What if we replace the party scenario with, I don't know, say a Mennonite summer camp? Or maybe we replace the party with 
a marching band camp, or a school homecoming dance, or a post-prom dinner, or a college orientation, or a concert with friends, a drive-in movie, a church lock-in. I could keep going, but you get the idea, right? There are a million ways that sex can come up, and the moment sex comes up is the moment it's too late to prepare your child for it. Abstinence-only education, especially education that stresses abstinence until marriage, it just doesn't explain the realities of sexual desire and connection. It fails to address why people seek out sex, what it can look and feel like, how to have sex safely and understand the risks and benefits. There's a lot that goes into preparing someone for sex and abstinence-only programs don't do that preparation justice. Another way that these programs fail is that they speak about sex through a mononormative and heteronormative lens, meaning that they assume that sex is taking place in a monogamous relationship, usually a marriage, and or that any sex happening is happening between two members of opposite biological sex, like a man or a woman. And surprise, surprise, that isn't always how sex happens. I mean, we all know that people that identify as part of the LGBTQIA community have sex, right? So if we're going to talk about sex, can we at least be real about it? I'm not saying you have to have a moral judgment about it, but can we at least acknowledge the realities of what is taking place in the world around us, right? And this isn't just for the sake of having all the information. It's honestly an issue of safety. Now, what I'm about to say might be a little challenging for some of you to hear, and for others, it could even be potentially triggering. Um, So just, I want to note that going into it. But a 2010 study noted that LGBTQ plus youth didn't feel adequately prepared for sexual encounters after engaging with abstinence-only education. So they sought out information elsewhere, from sources like pornography, friends, and even the internet. And this resulted in some very painful experiences because they didn't know how to prep themselves or use proper lubricants. Poor information can be harmful, especially for youth that are already underrepresented or marginalized. So to recap, abstinence-only education doesn't work. At best, it's marginally effective sometimes. At worst, it's simply dangerous. All this, and we haven't even touched on the emotional toll that abstinence-only education and messaging can have on people. When abstinence is taught as a morally superior option, there can be and often is a great deal of shame around sexual feelings and actions. This is where our churches and families bear some responsibility. We focused primarily on state legislatures, school boards, and the administrators enforcing abstinence-only education, but the truth is... Abstinence-only messaging happens in Sunday school classes, in chapels, and in homes all across the country. When we teach people that sex is morally wrong unless it happens within the context of a marriage, we're making a mistake. It's often a well-meaning and well-intentioned mistake, but it's a mistake and a disservice nonetheless. When we tell our children not to have sex until they found the person they're going to spend the rest of their life with, we're dropping the ball. When we suggest sexual thoughts or actions come from the devil or our flesh and not from God, we're giving God and all that is holy a bad rap. We're not telling them the whole truth. We're not painting a full picture. And in doing so, we're creating opportunities for shame to take root, which leads to people believing they're bad if they do have sex outside of marriage. It leads to ridicule and bullying in church or in school. It leads to slut-shaming and unfair gender standards around sex. 
and it leads to a deep disconnection with and a misunderstanding of our bodies and spirits. Even if you do wait until you're married to have sex, then what? There are thousands of stories out there about people who were celibate until marriage only to find that the sex wasn't enjoyable and that they didn't know how to talk about it. They had never explored their own bodies, so they didn't know what felt good and what didn't. Even if you follow the script, you can end up underprepared, disillusioned, and unfulfilled. And if we put aside what we know of psychology and human development for a second, do we really think that is how God designed us to experience sexual desire and pleasure? Is that really the best the divine has to offer us? No. No, it is not. I'm going out on a limb here, but what's new? I do that a lot. Abstinence-only messaging isn't God's plan or design. It's ours, and it has never worked. I don't normally claim to speak for God, but I want to name what I've experienced of God. And I've experienced God to be about love and liberation. I've experienced God to invite us to know ourselves as deeply as we're known by her, as deeply as the divine knows and understands us. God calls us to know our deepest sources of pleasure and to explore them, and when it's appropriate, to offer the gift of that exploration to others as well. God shows us how to be in relationship with ourselves and the other, and relationships involve consent, understanding boundaries and expectations, and discussing play and pleasure. It means saying no so we might know where our yes comes from. It means understanding our options so that when we make a choice, we're doing so from our deepest way of knowing and our power rather than from fear and shame. Folks, I'm here to tell you God is all about sexuality, sensuality, and eroticism when it involves intentionality and consent. But I think many of us resist this knowing. Many of us resist this messaging. Many of us resist this theology because of what it would require of us. For some reason, we take a hardline approach to sex because we're afraid of the knowing that is deep within us. We tell our children to wait until marriage because it's easier than reflecting on why we made the choices that we made when we were younger or reflecting on why we're making the choices that we're making right now. We're afraid to ask ourselves what we feel about sex and why we feel it. What would we have to admit if we did? What lies might be exposed? What truths would be faced? What pain and purpose might be unearthed in each of us if we let ourselves be a little more curious and open? What desires might emerge and how would we handle those desires? Unpacking all of that probably sounds exhausting and maybe even terrifying. And I'm not even going to say it isn't. It's hard. But it's worth doing. If not for ourselves, at least for our children, for our nieces and nephews, our students and mentees. I've been reading the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle, and there's a section in which Glennon is talking about sex and the ways in which parents communicate about sex to their children. And Glennon shares a profound quote that I want to offer to you today. In the book, Glennon says, we don't have to have answers for our children. We just have to be brave enough to walk into the woods and ask questions with them. I love that because it means we don't have to know everything about sex, but we do have to be brave enough to ask questions of ourselves, 
of our faith and of our education and to ask those questions with our children. So what's the solution? Well, the simplest answer is that we need a policy change. Comprehensive sexual education has to be taught in schools across the country. Whereas abstinence-only education focuses on avoiding sexual contact as the primary way to stay safe, comprehensive sexual education is more diversely defined. Most generally, these programs include medically accurate, evidence-based information about both contraception and abstinence, as well as condoms to prevent STI transmission. Some programs, known as Abstinence Plus, stress abstinence as the best way to prevent pregnancy and STIs, but also include information on contraception and condoms. Other programs emphasize safe sex practices and often include information about healthy relationships and lifestyles. So basically, we need comprehensive sexual education, and sometimes that education offers information or might even stress abstinence, but will include information on safer sex practices like condom wearing and birth control. And other times it doesn't stress any one method of safer sex, but just lists the menu and helps children and youth understand their options. So we need to mandate comprehensive sex ed. When sex is taught in our schools, it should be medically accurate and evidence-based. It should include information on contraception and abstinence and discuss establishing consent. So how do we make this happen? Well, we've got to put pressure on our state legislatures. And we need to get on the agenda at our local school board meetings. We need to know what curriculum is being taught in our middle school and high school classrooms. And here's one thing that might make you squirm. We also need to challenge the messages our children are receiving from the pulpit or Sunday school classroom. We might even need to challenge and question the messages they're receiving in our own home. And maybe they're not receiving any messages at all, which could arguably be worse. Because if you're not talking about it, I promise you they're getting that information from somewhere. So don't think just because you don't mention it, you're not doing harm. You're at least leaving the door open for misinformation, if nothing else. And look, I know that is tough, but we can do hard things. And if you're looking for a good faith-based resource, I encourage you to check out the United Church of Christ's Our Whole Lives curriculum. I've used it with youth groups before, and it works well. It's been a few years since I've seen it, so there could be some more up-to-date options out there, but I think it's a great starting point. You can find the link in the show notes. Finally, I'm going to give you some homework. I want to invite you to explore your own attitudes and feelings about sex, sensuality, and eroticism. And I'm going to leave you with some questions that will help you do just that. These questions will also prepare you for the next episode in which we're going to be exploring our attitudes about sex and our bodies a bit more deeply. All right, here are your questions. Where did you learn about sex? Who taught you and what did they teach? What does your faith tell you about sex, eroticism, and desire? Do you believe what it tells you? Why or why not? Knowing what you know now, what would you tell your 16-year-old self about sex? What role do fear and shame play in your sexual life? When do you notice them? What could that mean? All right, there you go. 
Those are your questions. I hope you find them helpful. These are meant to be tools for private and personal reflection. If you want to grab a friend or your partner and do some collective reflection, I think that would be wonderful. If you don't have someone, but you want to just send me some of your responses, I'm cool with that too. Use this however you want to use it. Um, if you want to send anything to me or have questions for me, email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com or hit me up on uh, Instagram or Facebook. And I, I know it may seem like an unconventional place to end and to leave us, um, but, but I want us to remember one thing. Sometimes in order to create the world that we want to create, we have to be willing to start with ourselves. Sometimes saving the world means saving ourselves first and unpacking the things that continually oppress us. And often the things that oppress us are internal attitudes about our bodies, about whether we're good or bad, and about our desires. So that's why I think it's important to start here, to start with these questions, to start with this personal reflection. Because yes, we can change state legislatures, but if we're not also transforming ourselves, then the impact we have will be limited. So ask those questions, have those hard conversations, get curious, and let's do the hard work of participating in our own liberation. Now that we know what it takes to talk about sex, let's get to work. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the What Would It Take podcast. If you appreciated this topic or have questions for me, once again, please email me, hit me up on Instagram or Facebook or even LinkedIn, wherever you want, I can be found. If you appreciate this content, please take a second and leave me a five-star rating on iTunes. You can also write a lovely message at your review, but that five-star rating is crucial because it's the fastest way for new listeners to find this content. And be on the lookout for the episode that's coming up in two weeks because we're going to unpack the theology and the attitudes we have around our bodies as it relates to this conversation around sex, sensuality, and eroticism. So stay on the lookout for that episode as well. All right, y'all. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the What Would It Take podcast. If you appreciate this podcast and the content I'm putting out, take a moment and leave me a five-star rating. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this content and information and the easiest way for you to support my work. So take a moment, leave me that five-star rating. I appreciate it. To find out more about me and what I do, you're welcome to follow me on Facebook at Benjamin J. Tapper. You can also follow me on Instagram at Thoughtful Revolutionary. That's Thoughtful underscore Revolutionary. And you can check out my blog on Substack called The Mix. This is a series of writings about belonging and the experience of being multiracial in the United States. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for your support. If you liked this episode format, feel free to give me some feedback. You can do that again on my social media channels or send me an email at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. That's benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. I'd love your feedback, ideas for new episodes, or if you've got a creative project you want to collaborate on, hit me up and we can see what we can get going. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope that you are uh, learning and sharing more content about the resilience and beauty of Black folks during Black History Month. And I look forward to connecting with you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.